Let us now turn for our scripture reading to the book of Colossians, uh, the third chapter, and we'll read the uh, first 14 verses. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, for the next uh, three Sundays, we're going to be considering a short series of sermons on Colossians chapter 3, and particularly this section that deals with uh, relationships in the church, in the home, in the in marriage. And uh, I realize, as perhaps you do, that a fuller treatment of these important subjects, is given in the book of Ephesians. And I do hope to preach on these themes in a fuller way in the course of a series of sermons throughout that whole book, that is, through the book of Ephesians, starting perhaps in about a month or so. But in the meantime, I don't want to wait until then to start giving some attention uh, to this uh, very crucial and practical matter of Christian living in this smaller series that we're uh, beginning this morning. I've entitled this series, Living Together with Christ. And I realize that uh, in this series, we're just dipping uh, into the very middle of this letter in a way that perhaps deserves some explanation, because you have heard uh, me uh, explain and emphasize the fact that there is a certain kind of grammar to the gospel. Uh, and that means that the the message of the gospel is not do this, do this, do this, don't do that. But the message of the gospel uh, is a report. It's good news about what God has done in Christ. And it's only upon believing and receiving that good news that we are called and enabled to live out of a relationship with God that we then have through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a certain order to these things. 
And that's reflected even in the kind of progression that we find in, in the epistles, the first part of the book, uh, characteristically dealing with the more doctrinal, the more indicative statements of what God has done in Christ. And then it moves from there to practical application to Christian living. Now we're dipping down into the section of the practical application. And so uh, maybe that requires some explanation. Well, my justification for doing that has two parts. Basically, as I indicated, I do plan to give a fuller treatment of the foundation for Christian living as we will, the Lord willing, work our way through the book of Ephesians, beginning with uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. But secondly, our text itself this morning keeps us connected with that foundation. You notice that it begins with the word therefore. And uh, you've perhaps heard me say, it's not original with me, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones says, whenever you read a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask yourself what it's there for. What's the connection that's being made? Verse 12 could also be rendered, put on then, that is in view of what has gone before, even as the first verse of this chapter begins that way. It says, if you, if then, you were raised with Christ, in other words, given the fact of your union with Christ, then set your affections on things which are above. So there's a very clear and important connection with these things that's uh, indicated uh, also in our text. It's through our union with the Savior, having died to sin with Him, and having been raised with Him to newness of life, signified in our baptism. It's in union with the Lord Jesus Christ that we are called and enabled to be renewed in His image. It's in union with Christ that we're called and enabled to put on the graciousness of Christ. And that's our theme that we're considering uh, from these first uh, three verses of this section we're dealing with, verses 12 through 14. It's an exhortation uh, that may be summarized with this calling to put on the graciousness of Christ, to put on those characteristics that reflect the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the express image of God, who indeed holds before our eyes by His words and life what it means to be renewed in the image of God. Now we want to begin by considering further that this indeed is a calling for Christians only. And that's made clear at the outset of our text where it says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Paul here appeals to uniquely Christian motivation. He doesn't say, I'm going to give a beautiful list of things for you to cultivate. I'm going to hold before you some ideals to strive after so that you can be a better person. I'm going to spell out some ways in which you can make friends and influence people. Or I'm going to give you a program which if you diligently follow, you can be sure that you will go to a better place when you die. That's the world's moralistic uh, religion. Our text doesn't talk that way. 
It's similar to the way Paul begins his practical section on the book of Romans when he says, I beseech you, I implore you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as living sacrifices based upon the saving mercy of God in Jesus Christ that he had been expounding for the previous 11 chapters. On that basis then, offer yourselves to God as your, as your reasonable service. You see, urging believers, or unbelievers rather, urging unbelievers to practice spiritual graces for Jesus' sake. Well, there are a lot of problems with that. For one thing, if they think they can do it, it's just going to promote their self-righteousness. Or it's going to be heard as a bunch of pious talk. These unrealistic uh, ideals that they would associate with a kind of pietism that they're not particularly interested in. You know, these virtues that Paul describes her, describes here, like humility and meekness and, and, uh, long suffering, these were hardly considered virtues in the Roman world. And like our day, virtues involve things like pride, self-confidence, being self-assured, don't let anyone take advantage of you, be nobody's fool, stand up for your rights. Well, Christ-like character is quite different than that. Or to, to, uh, to preach these kinds of things as a pathway, uh, to heaven, if people really take it seriously, they're just going to be burdened with the law. Now that could be good if it exposes their inability to live the Christian life and their need for the new birth, their need for God to work in their lives, and their need for the forgiveness of sins and a relationship to Christ. Well, yes, uh, preaching uh, such things in the church can have that effect. We pray that it does for any who would come to church, simply for some help to live a better life. No, these, uh, these uh, exhortations are for Christians only. And consider, secondly, also that Paul assumes the great purpose of election here. He addresses the saints as the elect of God. You see, real Calvinism, I, I'm, I'm talking about a Calvinism that's not simply theoretical, but an understanding of God's grace that has gripped the heart. Real practical Calvinism cannot see sanctification as optional, nor does it see sanctification simply as a, as a duty. For one thing, they understand that it is essential to uh, the eternal purpose for which God has set his love upon us and chose us, as Ephesians says, in Christ, so that we might be holy and without blame before him. We cannot understand election if we separate it from Christ. We cannot understand election if we separate it from God's goal and purpose, which is, yes, ultimate perfect conformity to Christ in heaven. But that begins on earth in our call to holiness as adopted children by pure grace that we should be holy and without blame before Him, before Him who predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Right? That's how Romans 8, this beloved chapter, describes election or predestination whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's God's purpose. 
And, and a Calvinist, somebody who understands election, can never separate these things. A Calvinist who is concerned with his security, but not is not interested in his sanctity, would be better off if he was a, a real Christian Arminian. Right? He'd be far better off to be confused in his theology, but love the Lord Jesus and seek to be holy in response to his wondrous grace. So Paul here assumes the great purpose of election as a motivation to pursue these things. And Paul treats his readers as those who are capable of spiritual action, spiritual activity, something that's not true of those that are yet dead in trespasses and sins. He's been exhorting them already in the previous verses uh, to put off these sins that are described there. And there already he uses this language of of uh, putting off and putting on. It's the language of uh, of clothing that are discarded or put on. And yes, we are uh, dealing uh, almost exclusively here with the positive side of that, putting on tender mercies, kindness, and humility. But there's there, there may be some value in that too, because some people think of sanctification largely in terms of don'ts. Don't do this. Avoid that. Without a positive pursuit of the graces of Jesus Christ. It's not simply negative. Being a Christian is not simply avoiding bad behavior. It's endeavoring truly to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're emphasizing the positive, but the assumption here in this text is that his readers by the grace of God, yes, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are, are capable of spiritual action. That, that's a, that's a, an action word, right? Put on. Put on. Something there to do. Now again, he's not saying, work your way to heaven. You can do it. Try hard enough and you will achieve enough holiness to make it. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he addresses them as holy. He addresses them as those who are set apart. As those who are treated as among the regenerate people of God. And again, their baptism proclaims that, right? That's one of the reasons why, why the, why the infants of uh, believing parents, even one believing parent, is to be baptized because they're covenant children. They're holy. That's how Paul describes them in 1 Corinthians 7. They're in that position of this covenantal relationship with God. And they're addressed as such. They're taught from their earliest uh, years to say, Our Father who is in heaven. We don't wait until they get eight or nine or whatever age that they can make a decision before we teach them that God is their Father and that Jesus is their Savior in whom they are to trust and whom they are to love and whom they are to serve as those in a relationship to Him. They're addressed as holy people. You have, verse 10 says, you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him. So to summarize, we might say that Paul addresses those who together know grace. Again, that's so crucial as we consider what these Christ-like characteristics really involve. They all involve such an attitude that says, well, but, but for the grace, or the, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
And that's the foundation for endeavoring after these attributes together with my brothers and sisters who by the grace of God also uh, share this same description as the elect of God, as those who are beloved by God, as those who are holy. And God makes us see that. God enables us to see one another in that way as God's beloved people. And that's foundation for the exercise of uh, these graces. The assumption behind this exhortation is is the shared riches of God's mercy in Christ Jesus. So it's a calling for Christians only. And then secondly, it's a calling for deficient and defective saints. Why do I say that? Well, for one thing, to begin with, it's clear that these Christ-like qualities are all, all relational. Yes, they're grounded in God's love for us individually as well as corporately. Uh, but they are not private virtues here that Paul is describing. He's not talking here about private Christian disciplines. They all have to do with, with how, relate, how we relate to one another. The Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at relationships in the home and in marriage. But instruction on those topics begins now, right? Because foundational to husbands and wives living together as Christians in unity and love involves the exercise of these very things that are described here. Tender mercies and kindness and humility and, and meekness and long-suffering. Without those fundamental attitudes of heart, there are no techniques, there is no rules, there is no methods of learning love languages and practicing that in a way to get what you want. None of that will work. None of that has anything to do with with Christian thinking and living apart from these graces. So they're fundamental to every relationship in the home and in the church. And they're all necessary. And they're all necessary because we all have needs and we all have problems. Some of these uh, things are due to hard conditions in life. Sickness, loss, grief, poverty, mistreatment or abuse. Have tender hearts. Bowels of mercies is actually a more literal rendering of the language here. In other words, be deeply moved. It's like feel in your gut compassion for others when they suffer. Weep with those who weep. Care deeply about them. Be like the Lord Jesus Christ in this regard, right? How often do we, do we read, uh, as a kind of preface to, uh, his healing miracles that he was moved with compassion? He was inwardly moved in mercy with a desire to relieve suffering, give comfort and help. And we have occasion to seek to do that because of the hard conditions in life. That we often share. Relieve suffering with kindness in words and in action. Show that care of the Lord Jesus. Also in their failings and their sins. You see, many of these Christ-like graces assume very real faults. Humility, meekness, long-suffering, and bearing with one another. <laughs> 
you know, to put it in modern colloquialism, it's, it has to do with putting up with each other. It has to do with enduring, uh, sins in others. All these things really have to do with how we respond to such faults. And again, they really do require a knowledge of our own faults and sins. And they require a knowledge of God's tender mercies and kindness to us. As those who don't deserve it. But keep receiving it. Extend that grace to others, Paul is saying, as the beloved of God. When you think of those terms, we have to appreciate how small such offenses committed against us are in comparison to our sins against God. And that's also basic to uh, listening to what Paul goes on to say when he says, forgive as Christ forgave you. You know that to forgive is to cancel a debt, right? And sometimes, well, even in the Lord's Prayer, that, that language of debt is used. And forgiveness is actually illustrated by canceling monetary debt, by stories in which one person owed someone else a lot of money and said, be merciful to me. And that other person freely forgave him the debt. Now, that might be helpful because we can also also all relate to the fact that if you do that, you don't get your money back. If you forgive someone, you suffer some loss. You've got to eat it, so to speak. If you forgive someone, there's no justice. You forego justice. If you forgive someone, you accept injury without revenge, without payback, with loose ends. It's really important for us to appreciate that. Exercising forgiveness costs us something. No, isn't it sad that sometimes really what it only costs us is our pride? It costs us our indignation over what so-and-so has done or said to me. Think of what it costs the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive us. Think of the anguish that he endured upon the cross as he suffered the justice and vengeance of God against our sins. Remembering that should be of help to us to learn to forgive others who have sinned against us. And this isn't just for some special cases. I mean, listen to the language there. It says, if anyone has a complaint against another, period, without further description, anyone, whatever that complaint might be, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Living together with Christ is living in a culture of mutual patience, tolerance, and forgiveness. That's crucial to living with Christ together. And again, for that to happen, we need to consider finally that this is a calling for those bound together in love. In verse 14, we read, But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And Paul may yet be using the imagery of, uh, of dressing. Imagine, uh, putting on a neatly pressed, uh, pants and, uh, matching socks and a belt and a shirt and a matching tie, perhaps a vest 
And yet there's, there's one more piece, uh, needed to complete, uh, the outfit. A suit coat. And you might say, well, the suit coat kind of completes and it kind of uni uh, unifies, uh, the, uh, the attire. Now, I'm not sure that Paul had something in, in mind, a literal kind of garment that would kind of finish off, you know, uh, attire, bring everything together. But could that give a comparison with love? Certainly without love, nothing matches the image of Christ whatsoever. Lofty speech or great sacrifice is nothing. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm like a sounding gong. In fact, love must be at the heart of these other graces. It's not something extra in addition to... uh Long-suffering, for example. You hear that in Ephesians chapter 4, where we're called to walk worthy of our calling, which we, with which we are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. It's not, it's not putting up with one another, because, well, that's just what we have to do, I guess, in order to get along. No, it, it is to be the kind of forbearance that God has towards us the kind of long-suffering that he shows towards us. It's done in love for us. We're called to be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. In fact, love is actually defined by these things, right? If you go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great chapter on Christian love, uh, you remember what it says where it defines love this way, love bears all things. Love suffers long. It's the first, it's the first thing actually. The first positive description of love there is love suffers long and is kind. And so love is not really an addition to long suffering and kindness, but long suffering and kindness really define what such love really is. And we need to see, brothers and sisters, that the perfection of love is not just personal. In other words, it's not just necessary for our individual maturity in Christ's image. It's necessary for the bond of life and fellowship in the church. Verse 14 has been rendered of uh, love. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. We might say that it's what keeps us together with Christ. Growing together towards that that lofty goal to which we are called. Again, it's described more completely in Ephesians chapter 4 where it says that we're being equipped for the edification of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we might think, well, that's our individual calling. No, in the context here, that's a description of the maturity of the body which together with its various members and persons reflect God's goal that the image of Christ should be manifested in, ch in the church with all the diversity of members together exhibiting that fullness of the stature of the perfect man who is Jesus Christ. Then it goes on that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, but speaking the truth in love may grow up 
in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself. There's two more words. In love. In love. That whole description of cooperation, growth, is characterized by love. You remember how 1 Corinthians uh, 13 is introduced after a treatment of the kinds of gifts that a lot of people get all excited about in the church even today, tongues and prophecy, right? Paul says, but I show you a better way. And then he describes love. But do you know also how chapter 14 begins? Pursue love. I think it's important to realize that this love chapter is bookmarked or it's, there's bookends to it. Love is the better way. And it's something that we are to pursue. Right? We are enabled by God's grace to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We're enabled by God's grace to be convicted by a sermon about love. I am. I assure you. It's possible that some of these things have raised questions in your minds about what it means to forgive someone who has uh, harmed you terribly. And uh, we must not think that a heart of forgiveness, a ready forgiveness, a readiness, involves the kind of reconciliation that sometimes is impossible. And I would also say that if you have really difficult questions about this in terms of, of uh, what forgiveness looks like, well, talk to an elder. Talk to someone who will give you some good help and counsel. A sermon like this on this subject doesn't answer every difficulty. But what it does for us is that it makes us want to exhibit more of these Christian graces. We see the beauty of them because they really are a description of the beauty and the glory of our Savior. And we long to be more like Him. And we're ashamed at our failure to exhibit more of that graciousness. And we truly live by God's mercy and long-suffering and patience with us. I, I Reading that form for infant baptism, I don't know about you, but I found it very comforting where it talks about forsaking those sins with which uh, they will have to struggle their whole life. Yes, this little infant boy, until the time he dies, is going to have to struggle with sin. He's going to be in a spiritual battle. And, and we're all in a spiritual battle. We're going to be fighting these sins. But by the grace of God, we're in the fight. By the grace of God, we're enabled by His Spirit to make progress. By the grace of God, we're enabled to behold the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and be motivated by the mercy of God towards us sinners and motivated by the certainty of the accomplishment of His work he who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Well, may God help us to receive this, uh, this exhortation in faith and gratitude. Amen.